We are very much at the two-thirds point through the book of Galatians. And through the book of Galatians, right, you might have noticed, Paul emphasizes a few concepts a lot. And we have addressed those, right? And some of the most important concepts have, have particular relevance that even I didn't fully recognize until this morning as we're in the service, right? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ never changes, and we never compromise it. And yet, we have freedom in Christ, and there will always be those forces at work to try and uh, chip away at that freedom in Christ, that freedom in gospel, uh, and say, no, if you're going to be a Christian, it's got to look like this, right? In the church of Galatia, it was, it's great that you're a Christian, but it's got to look like this. You need to get circumcised. You need to follow the rules and the law. But just as relevant today in the 21st century is we have a tendency, and we mean well by it, to say, yeah, we love the gospel, we love Jesus Christ, we are free in Christ, but church needs to look like this. It needs to be a certain way, it needs to be a certain time, it needs to involve certain trappings and and clothing and so forth. Um, That can erode our freedom just as easily, because freedom is a fragile thing. Freedom is something that must be carefully tended and maintained or else it inevitably erodes. Those of you who served in the the military and and experienced sacrifice and danger and deployments there, you did it to guard freedom because you know freedom is not free. It erodes over time if it is not vigilantly tended. But spiritual freedom works exactly the same way, right? The world and our spiritual life does not naturally become more free. It naturally erodes to become less free unless we are applying vigilance and effort and and sacrifice to maintain and expand that freedom, right? And that freedom in Christ means that that we do do not ever compromise the Scripture, we don't ever compromise the Gospel, but we need to recognize that we have freedom about how we observe church, how we observe worship. And that's some of the themes that Gannon was talking about and and some of the things we're going to be trying to do. Because we, we will never compromise the gospel, but we want to, to be taking the church in ways to reach folks, particularly if you have children or grandchildren who, who aren't going to darken the door of a church. This is about how we reach them for the gospel in a way that meets them where they are. Uh, hence my excitement about this, because I think the world is ready to respond to Jesus, even if they're not yet ready to respond to church or Christianity as they're used to to seeing it. And so we must stay vigilant about our freedom, right? We must stay vigilant about the gospel. Paul has emphasized that repeatedly, but we must be vigilant about our freedom and not just let it go away. Say, well, yeah, you can only do this. Oh, you got to do that. Oh, you got to do this. You got to do that. Because Christ died to buy that freedom, to buy our spiritual freedom. He bought it with his Blood, But there are going to be forces at work constantly trying to convince our hearts and our minds to surrender that freedom just a little bit at a time. A little bit here, a little bit there. Every individual Christian must stand firm for his or her spiritual freedom. This is Paul's command to us in Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Paul writes, For freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. 
You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, in the last two chapters, Paul has presented multiple arguments for embracing the new covenant in Jesus Christ rather than sliding back into the old covenant of the law of Moses. And and so today he, he summarizes this point and he transitions to the final section of the letter, which, of course, is my favorite part of the letter to the Galatians, because we see a vivid portrait emerge of how we are supposed to live in community and how we are to enjoy our life in Christ. And this we'll be unpacking over the next few weeks as we work through chapters 5 and 6. And even as we have talked about great theological truths along the way in these last two chapters, we really get into some some things that are really nice, really just wonderful and delightful at a personal level, right? As one Christian talking to other Christians. And I think what we see emerge are just two extraordinary dimensions at a personal level, right? Of our faith that are just not available to any other path or, or faith or system in the world. Two realities that we should learn to enjoy so much that we just can't help but tell our friends and neighbors about them because they're extraordinarily unique. And the first is just this wonderful assurance of our salvation through faith in Christ, that that we will one day spend eternity in God's presence, though we do not deserve it. And the second is the vibrant, abundant life that faith in Christ offers to each of us right here, right now. Right? That we're not just waiting to enjoy life in eternity, that we, through Christ, are able to enjoy life right now. The joy of a life filled with the Spirit. A joy that does not depend on our external circumstances, or our health, or our income, or any of the other things going on in our life. And both of these dimensions come into view as we walk through the verses this morning. But first, Paul warns us that we are free in Christ, so we must stand firm for freedom. Verse 1, it begins with this just ringing statement, for freedom, Christ has set us free. And this language, we should note, is describing a one-time event by which Jesus set every Christian free. And that event, of course, was his sacrifice on the cross. Because Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He was present at creation. He has eternally been in relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit. But, But something unique and extraordinary happened at that first Christmas when Jesus took on a human nature and entered our world as a baby. And he came and he experienced all of the temptations and the suffering of human life and lived a perfect life that was free of all sin. And as he, as he taught and preached and he, he worked miracles, he, he demonstrated for us the life that we should all lead, but of course we each fail to lead because of personal moral weakness, because of selfishness, because of fear, because of greed, because of insecurity or anxiety and and so many other things. But we must never think that Jesus just humbled himself and took on a human nature simply to be a great teacher or a moral 
example or a leader or a social revolutionary, we must always remember Christ came to fulfill God's eternal plan to redeem creation from the burden and the damage and the slavery of sin. This is what Paul is getting at here. Jesus lived among us so that he could die on a Roman cross as the perfect final sacrifice required to pay the penalty for your sins and mine and the sins of all those around us who don't yet know what he did for them. As Hebrews 9.22 explains, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And this is what points us to the cross, as Hebrews 9.26 concludes, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. At the cross, Jesus set us free through the breaking of his body and the shedding of his blood. And he did it because we can't free ourselves. Because our sin and our personal appetite to sin just outweighs our good intentions and our good works and our best efforts to try and please God. And on our own, we are just always going to be enslaved to sin in our body and our mind and our soul because we are unable to be good enough to meet the standards of the perfectly holy and righteous and just God. And how discouraging is it as we come to realize that? But at the cross, Jesus freed everyone who puts their faith in Him as Lord and Savior. At the cross, Christ set us free. Free from the burden of having to save ourselves by working ever harder while failing ever more quickly. Free from the slavery to our habits and addictions and anxieties and histories. And yes, do they still have a power on in our lives? Yes, but we are not enslaved to them. He set us free from death by giving eternal life to all who trust in him. For freedom, Christ set us free. But we need to understand what freedom looks like. Because as human beings, we are not set free in the sense of anarchy and running wild with no higher authority or ruling force in our lives because it is in our nature to submit to something. And so naturally that something is the powers and the temptations of the world or you know whether it's our lusts and desires or whether it's the, the lusts and desires of someone around us with more power and more influence, more money. But the cross, Christ set us free to submit our lives to a greater power and a greater purpose to one who loves us and wants the absolute best for us. And so in Christ, we have a choice. Right? Do we submit again to the forces of the world or do we submit to Jesus Christ as the Lord of our life? This is what Paul is alluding to at the end of verse 1. Stand firm, therefore. Right, An ongoing need to stand firm. You don't stand firm one day. You have to stand firm every day. And do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. The world always wants to come alongside us, put its arm around our shoulder, and clamp the yoke of slavery on our neck. It's very happy to do that, to resume controlling, constraining, and conforming us to its will and its direction. But Christ offers a very different yoke to us in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. Come to me, all who labor 
and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you are a Christian, the question becomes, who really controls and directs your daily life? Who are you yoked to? Are you yoked to Jesus? Are you going where he leads? Are you moving in step with him and finding rest and restoration for your soul in him? Or are you desperate to find rest and restoration somewhere? And you're trying all kinds of things and it's not working because there's only one who can. Right? Have you allowed yourself to remain or resume being yoked to the forces of the world? All right, if you are exhausted this morning for any reason other than you worked the yard sale all week, right? I, I'm, I can't, yeah, you're exhausted, that's valid. By the way, the yard sale raised over $9,200 for missions. So that's, I can send a couple teams overseas. Okay, so that's valid if you're exhausted. If you are exhausted for any other reason, and let's face it, right, we are in Northern Virginia. We are Nova men and women, which means we are exhausted by something at all times, pretty much. All right, if you are tired and burdened this morning, ask yourself, who's running my life? All right, is it Christ? Or is it career? Is it culture? Money? Materialism? Sex? Love? Family? Sports? Entertainment, pleasure, church, social status, what is running your life, right? Because if you're exhausted, it's likely you've once again become yoked to the demands and expectations of the world, of other people, regardless of your love for Jesus. Christ died to set us free, and Paul's message in verse 1 is that we must each stand firm for our freedom, rather than letting it be, be chipped away by, by some slick preacher or or, or some slick voice on the internet or Facebook, a great source of lots of fake things, that tells us we need to add to the gospel of Jesus Christ in order to get right with God. We need to realize that adding anything to the gospel rejects God's grace in Christ. This is Paul's argument in verses 2 through 4. The Galatian Christians were being, being lured away from the true good news of Jesus Christ by smooth talkers who claimed, okay, that's great that you're... You're a Christian, it's great that you put your faith in Jesus, but you need to do more to really, really, really enjoy your best life now. Right? You need, to, you need to add some rules and rituals from the Jewish law, and then you'll be spiritually more advanced, and you'll be enjoying that good life. Well, God, Paul says in verse 2 that when you start down that road, right? when you accept the circumcision, that's their example, but there are things in our culture that are going to look the same way, right? Even if it's just a, a simple get along to go along, it means Christ can't help you. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. And, it, and Paul's point is not that circumcision matters. Verse 6 is pretty clear on that point, right? Circumcision doesn't matter. The issue isn't physical, it's spiritual, Right? If a person is convinced they need to do more to save themselves than what Christ did for them at the cross, it means we never really understood the real good news of Jesus Christ. It means that we never really embraced Him by faith as the one and only Savior of the world whose work is sufficient. As Paul makes clear in verse 3, if you believe that any part of the law was necessary to be saved and get right with God, 
then it meant they were rejecting the good news and resuming trying to save themselves. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. And the point he is making here is that, you know, if in our pride, right, let's put it in personal terms, they are having an issue, but, but Christians today have issues too, right? If in our pride we think, in order to make myself good enough for God, I, I got to do some stuff. So I got to work on some stuff so that I can be good enough and clean enough and holy enough for God. You know, if you want to do that, you got to follow all 613 rules of the Mosaic Law. And the point is, that's impossible. And Paul has already said that the purpose of the law being given was to reveal God's absolute holiness and mankind's absolute sinfulness and our total inability to save ourselves. To get us ready to really embrace the good news. And so we must realize that embracing any part of the law for salvation rejects God's grace by which we are saved. Adding to the work of Christ rejects that undeserved, unearned favor of God that we enjoy through faith in Christ alone. That's why Paul explains in verse 4, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace because to try and save ourselves by hard work and, and good deeds and good intentions and rituals and rules means we've never really understood or embraced that grace of God. And this was Paul's fear for his friends. Yes, there are certainly things we ought to be doing as followers of Jesus Christ. That's the very essence of discipleship. But that is radically different from thinking that we are saved by those things. And so we have to be vigilant regarding those who claim we need to do more. Right? This is the claim of the Christian cults. This is the claim of other faiths, right? That we have to do more to get right with God. So, my friends, guard yourselves. Stand firm. Don't trade your freedom in Christ for a yoke of slavery to the ways of the world. And if you think it can't happen to you, you're in danger. Because it's trying to happen to us all the time. But I mentioned that there were two distinctives that I think are just personal result, personal perspective. They're just such a tremendous joy that we experience in Christ. Things that are unique about the Christian faith, things we need to understand before we are quick to to trade them away for some other system. And in verse 5, we come to the first of those, that we are righteous by faith. Verse 5 proclaims, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Now, I've shared before, biblical hope is not the same thing as we've come to use it in modern English. Right? I always say, like, I always hope I get some nachos. That is not what the Bible means. But I like nachos every day. Biblical hope is the confident expectation of what will come. And Paul's point is that in Christ, we are confident that we are righteous in God's eyes by faith. In Christ, we, and Paul is very emphatically including himself here, we and all true believers in Christ have confidence that we will be declared righteous. That God will say that we are right and holy and good when we stand before Him after our death. And I firmly believe that at that moment, we will clearly remember all of the terrible things we have ever said to those we love. And all of the terrible things we will have done to those who came between us and whatever our sinful desire of the day is. And all of the terrible things we will have thought about everyone around us in our sort of inner dialogue 
I think we'll remember those things clearly, but God will declare us good and holy and clean and righteous and welcome us into his presence forever. And why is that? Because of faith. Paul says, by faith, we eagerly wait. Right? We're not just waiting. We're not worried. We are eagerly waiting for the certainty of God's declaration. Because as Paul has already shared in this letter, it is by faith in Christ that we are declared righteous. And and how can this possibly be? Because though we are obviously in truth extremely unrighteous, by faith we are credited with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 promises, For our sake He, God, made Him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. So we have the certainty that when God looks at us, he sees his own righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And do we deserve that? Absolutely not. That's the definition of grace. Ephesians 2.8 reminds us, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. And God's grace is available every day. It is free for the taking when we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It is available every time thereafter when we mess up and we fall into sin and we repent of it and ask God's forgiveness. And we can have total confidence in this righteousness and this salvation and this eternal life because it is guaranteed by the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Paul tells us in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance, until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. Every believer in Jesus Christ receives the Holy Spirit the moment we put our faith in Christ, and God's Spirit will never leave us. And so at the most basic level, we can always rest in this assurance that the Spirit's presence guarantees God's favor, not because we deserve it, not because of our personal righteousness, but because of our righteousness in Jesus Christ. But as Paul transitions from the persuasive portion of his letter, we begin to see an extraordinary picture of Christian life in the Spirit emerge. This is one we're going to spend time on the next several weeks as we get to enjoy the privilege of having God present in our hearts, empowering the change and transformation we desperately desire 24-7. This is an extraordinary joy. It is a tremendous promise for followers of Christ. Right? There is no other faith in the world that will offer this kind of certainty or peace or comfort in salvation. That is why there's so much anxiety in the world, so much effort expended. Because every other system relies on trying to be good enough to please the spiritual power they worship. But in Christ, we can be 100% certain. Because our salvation depends exclusively on the righteousness of Christ, which is credited to our account and sealed by God's Spirit. And so we begin to see this second distinctive personal joy, right? That it is more than just that we have a a get-out-of-hell-free card. That we're going to enjoy someday, but rather that in Christ we can enjoy every day even the bad ones. Because the Holy Spirit is with us, empowering us through faith in Christ. Verse 6, B, 
begins to introduce this. Turns out the Beatles were almost right. Right? They just missed the truth by three small words. All you need is faith working through love. Paul declares, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. All the physical markers, all the rituals, all the processes and the rules, they count for nothing, Paul says. Right? No matter how churchy and ritualistic we are, it counts for nothing. No matter how hard we try or how much we suffer in trying to save ourselves, it counts for nothing. Your past, good or bad, counts for nothing. All that matters is genuine faith, which will be demonstrated through love. Obviously, we've been talking a lot about the part where we're saved by grace through faith alone, but what Paul is now bringing into view as he begins to explore our present life from now until the day we die is that saving faith demonstrates itself through authenticity, through clear markers, and most particularly through love. The proof of our faith to ourselves and to the world around us, the proof that there is something to this Christianity thing, I mean, this is the proof that a skeptical world needs to see is authentic love. It is supernatural love for the unlovable. And realize whether you like to think about it or not, we are all unlovable sometimes. Jesus told us in John 13, 34, and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, our faith in Jesus Christ will be manifested by the same kind of sacrificial, unconditional, unworldly, Christ-like love that Jesus himself shows towards each and every one of us every single day. But this is hard, right? Real biblical love. The kind of love we see in 1 Corinthians, which is not just about getting married on your wedding day, but it's actually about how you live with all those jerks around you, yourself included. The kind of love that is patient and kind towards those who are irritating and unkind. right? The kind that, that doesn't envy or boast around those who are putting on a show themselves. That isn't arrogant or rude towards those who are obnoxious. The kind of love that doesn't insist on its own way, no matter how right it might be, but always, always, always chooses the best interests and desires of the other person. A love that isn't irritable or resentful when it's not being returned. A love that doesn't rejoice at, at wrongdoing by those who are obstinate, obnoxious, and hateful. A love that rejoices at the truth, even when the truth hurts and bears the unbearable, and believes the unbelievable, and hopes in the face of hopeless, unchanging, unyielding despair. The kind of love that endures every indignity life can throw at it. That kind of love is impossible on our own, by our own strength, by human discipline, by will, by our own effort, by kindness, by being born that way, or by earthly incentive. Christ-like love is only possible through the Spirit-filled life that's available through Jesus Christ. That kind of love is part of the fruit of the Spirit, the evidence of our faith that has saved our soul and transforms our lives. Faith working through love. We're going to be talking a good bit about this in coming weeks as we move through Galatians. 
But if you're sitting here right now and you're kind of feeling concerned because you got the faith, but where's the love? One, that should be terribly convicting. And you should be considering that about yourself. What does that mean? And we'll be delving into that in coming weeks. But, but the answer, the short form answer, right, is to nurture the life of the Spirit. The work of the Spirit in your life. That's a topic for, for future weeks as we go through Galatians 5. But for today, rest in your assurance of your salvation, the presence of God's Spirit, and the confident hope that every aspect of your life will be transformed through the ongoing work of God's Spirit in your life. And now would you please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, once again we rejoice in the glorious words of your Scripture. Rejoice in the truth that you sent your Son into this world to redeem creation that he did it through a sacrifice on the cross that, that set those who follow him free. That if we put our faith in him, we have a freedom that is unlike any other in this world. And so, Lord, as we reflect on these words, I pray first and foremost that you would help us to, to embrace that freedom. That if there is anyone here who has not yet put their faith in Christ, Lord, that your spirit would be tugging at their heart and that they would make that choice to trust in Jesus. And for the rest of us, Lord, I pray that you will help us to just embrace that freedom, right? To, that you would reveal to us where we have voluntarily enslaved ourselves back into some system or reality or pressure of the world. And that you would hear us as we repent of that and ask for freedom. And so, Lord, I just want to set aside a quiet moment of prayer where we can, where anyone here can just lay that before you. Confess of something that's been holding them hostage and embrace their freedom in Christ. Lord, hear our prayers. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who has been wrestling with uncertainty or anxiety about their, about their faith, about what happens when they die, that your words would go to work in their hearts to give peace and comfort and assurance. And Lord, that you would never let us take these things for granted, but instead that you would help us to recognize just how unique these things are. And that you would free our tongues and our hearts to share this offer of grace and assurance to those in our lives who need to hear this. Lord, if there are those here who are struggling to really live that life in the Spirit, they're happy to be here on Sunday, but they're really struggling the rest of the week with the very real difficulties of life.
pray that you would use this time to hear them as they lay before you the anxieties and the concerns, the burdens and the fears that weigh them down, the sins and habits and addictions they wrestle with. Lord, and fan the spirit into flame in their hearts. Bring that transformation, Lord. Hear, hear the prayers and concerns that we lay before you. Father, we lift these things up to you the strong name of Jesus. Help us to stand firm in him against all things that would chip away our freedom. So Jesus' name we pray. Amen.